0: Biometrics are sort of tied up with digital identity. So I wanted to talk a little bit about digital identity before I get to biometrics, because you'll see during the course of this lecture that the two are somewhat intertwined uh, things. And I wanted to start with a a rather British example uh, of somebody who um, has been thrown out of their house. So uh, they're in in impecunious circumstances. They haven't paid their rent and they've been kicked out of their house without anywhere to go and the landlord in a rage has destroyed all of their possessions and so there is now a a challenge before you because you've got to rebuild your life you've got to go and get a whole load of identity documents in order to rebuild your life and I've picked three that are sort of essential for everyday life the bank card the driving license and the passport my question to you um, I should point out that this lecture is taking place in the United Kingdom, so similar arguments would apply in, in other civilizations. The UK is not particularly bureaucratic, in fact. Uh, but a similar idea would would apply. Now, if you look at this as a little sort of problem, um, obviously the, the thing you need first is the bank card, because if you don't have a bank card, you can't get any money. So um, in this person's case, this is a real case, by the way, Um, she hadn't just lost her bank card. For various reasons, she didn't have access to the bank account, so she needed to open a new bank account. So in order to do that, you need to prove your identity. And the way that would normally be done is to proffer one of these two uh, identity documents, photo IDs, the passport, which is quite a common document in the UK, or the driver's licence, as it would be called in the US, or driving licence in the United Kingdom. Either one of those would would do. So, you can't get anything out of the bank until you have one of these things. Right, well, how do you get one of these things? Well, how do we get a driving licence? Well, you need a passport. There are other ways involving complicated letters from various things, but really what you need is a passport and 34 quid. Well, how do you get a passport? Okay, well, you need a birth certificate, your parents' birth certificate, two passport photographs, an interview, £85, and you wait six weeks. So, this is actually a real case. So, you, in order to be a digital citizen in this kingdom, in this United Kingdom, you probably need to invest about £130 pounds and wait six weeks. So, this, this lady would have starved if it hadn't been for her friends. It's quite an interesting observation, isn't it? This sort of circularity and dependence upon uh, identity is a big, uh, a big issue. So, the biometric is an idea that helps you, might help you get around this need for documents, amongst other things. So I should just put, put out a couple of definitions which might confuse you. The word biometrics used to be used to mean biometric statistics. And indeed, there's a journal called Biometrica, which uh, some people publish in. Uh, that's not quite the way we're going to use it today. What, what, what I'm meaning is direct measurement of the characteristics of people. And I've said at the bottom here, rather sort of gnomically, an alternative to tokens or humans. And what I mean by that is there are really three ways that you could um, demonstrate identity. The first one is uh, something that you remember. So um, a password. We're all pretty familiar with those, no doubt. I expect you've got uh, millions of the things either written down in a small black book or... um, like me, in a password manager. Um, Open Sesame is the, uh, you know, the ultimate password, isn't it? One of the earlier ones. So that's the first one, something that you remember. And they have all the problems and hassles of passwords, which I'm sure the real audience and the virtual audience can describe much more fully than I can. The second thing is something you carry. Right? It's a key or a bank card or a passport or something like that. It's an identity document. And the third thing is something that you are, something that is intrinsic to you, and that's the idea behind a biometric. Okay, so the biometric gets away with the first two items, or it may, in practice, augment them. OK, so the classic uh, biometric is the one that we're all familiar with. So I, I saw in the physical audience a couple of people I recognised, and uh, I went up to them, and I shook their hand and said, oh, hello, how are you? Um, I didn't prod them to make sure that they were real, um, and I I was confident enough in my own abilities to recognise them and associate the token, their name, with their face. Personally, I'm not very good with names, but I'm very good with uh, faces. But it's a sort of interesting question, before we get to doing this automatically, how accurate are humans when it comes to doing this uh, task? OK, well, this this has been studied. Um, There was a very interesting study. done by uh, Richard uh, Kemp and others at University of Westminster. And a few years ago, somebody thought it would be a good idea if credit cards contained a photograph. So the experiment they did was they got a load of cashiers uh, in, in supermarkets together after hours and they got some customers together and they sent the customers to go and buy things with and without photo ID credit cards. What they also did in the course of that experiment was they gave some of the shoppers false credit cards, meaning that they were credit cards with the wrong photograph on. The shoppers were incentivized to process those transactions quickly and accurately. Um, so it was a 50, they were paid 50 pounds to do it and a £25 pound bonus for performance. So, you know, not, not bad um, not bad salary compared to what you normally paid for doing that job. You might be surprised by the result. It's a bit of a shock, isn't it, that half of the photo IDs, fraudulent photo IDs, were accepted. Um, It's really quite a sort of appalling um, statistic. And the people involved in this, of course, were professionals, if you like. They were people who knew how to do the cashiering job. They They were very familiar with it. It wasn't a a sort of artificial task. Actually, it's worse than that. Um, the, um, the two Dans, Dan Simons and uh, Dan Levin, famous in the uh, psychology world for um, uh, measuring the performance of humans, they have a beautiful video of the experiment they did on the Harvard University campus. And the experiment is as follows. Um, there's, a, there's a person looking at a map you know, so they're looking lost, and they're looking at this map, and a local comes up to them to help them. And just at the moment, when they're sort of first in saying, oh, I'm lost, I'm lost, uh, some people carrying a door sort of barge through and temporarily separate the person carrying the map from the the person trying to help them. Unbeknownst to the person trying to help them, or maybe known to them, that's the point of the experiment, the person with the map switches with the person carrying a door, passes the map to the other person, and walks off. So... The, uh, the local is now left with a different person. So it's really, when you see this, it's quite extraordinarily dramatic. You think, well, this is quite astonishing, really. Uh, it, and during the course of the experiment, I'm sure I remember this rightly, certainly the gender of the person changes in mm-hmm. several of the experiments, and indeed the race of the person changes. Uh, yeah, in one of the experiments, the person goes from a white man to a black man. Uh, so, how many people spot the switch? About half. Okay? It's really very dramatic. Now, I'm sorry I can't show you the video, actually. Dan, the da, Simons and uh, Levin are obsessed about the um, intellectual property rights associated with their video, so you can follow the link afterwards and look at the video yourself. It's very entertaining, but um, I fear that I cannot show it to you, and cannot show it to you online without the... Uh, without spending a very large amount of money. So uh, do have a look, that's an absolutely fascinating thing. So on the one hand, that's good news, isn't it? Humans are terrible at this. So if you're a computer scientist, you think, fantastic, we've only got to beat the humans and everyone will be happy. Um, On the other hand, uh, already we're entering a sort of rather murky world of social science. And no computer scientist really likes entering that murky world of social science but I'm afraid ladies and gentlemen it's going to be essential to do that in the biometrics okay so let's just put that to one side now let's look at the history you know what what's the history of biometrics there's a whole lecture to be given on the history of biometrics and it's a a totally fascinating one I I wasn't super familiar with this until I started to research uh, this lecture but there's a very good case for India being an important country in biometrics so this is a very early example of a fingerprint um and it's actually a contract here here's the contract and on the back of a contract is the handprint and it's a contract between this guy herschel and mr kanai in 1858 um, and somewhat irritated i think w- was herschel by um various books by Galton and various policemen claiming that they had invented fingerprinting, that he wrote this book saying, no, no, you didn't, I, I thought of it long before you. Um, anyway, it was a rather uh, fascinating idea that the identity of the person here was not measured by a uh, uh, writing or anything like that. It was me- measured using a fingerprint. Incidentally, as far as I can tell, Konai, the person uh, printing this, wasn't illiterate, so it wasn't, the, uh, it wasn't a question of, you know, overcoming the need to write anything. It was, I mean... He could certainly be capable of reading the contract. Um, the idea was, between them, that this would be a more um, permanent, a more difficult um, thing to forge than a signature. Interesting um, and very uh, prescient idea. Moving a bit further forward, we come across this wonderful chap, Alphonse Bertillon, um, Bertillon was a very sort of early um, forensic scientist, a French uh, scientist, and he invented all sorts of things that are with us today. So Bertillon um, invented the mugshot, as it's called. So this is the the two pictures of uh, usually a criminal, but um, could be an innocent person as well. Uh, He wrote this whole book about what measurements you should make on people, uh, so there's these fascinating engravings, a great big sort of calipers across people's heads in various ways. And you can see some of these measurements here. Um, here we go, here are the uh measurements of uh, the tete. Um here we have uh couleur de iris, here, iris colour, colour of Barb uh, beard, and various other things, all recorded in meticulous uh, uh detail. Um And some way before, uh, Galton, who was was often credited with uh, fingerprint analysis. And so famous was Bertillon, he actually appears in in Sherlock Holmes, actually, several times. Um, In this case, um, this is the man in the uh, um, Hound of Abaskervilles who's come to consult Holmes. And uh, the the chap says rather unwisely, recognising, as I do, that you are the second highest expert in Europe. Indeed, sir, says Holmes. May I inquire who is the honour to be the first? asked Holmes with some asperity. To the man of a purely, precisely scientific mind, the work of Monsieur Bertillon must always appeal strongly, said the lad. Well, we couldn't agree more, could we, ladies and gentlemen? So um, he was a quite eccentric man, Bertillon, um, and uh, by all accounts, you know, he's quite weird. And uh, uh, he has as many... There's certainly good accounts of him completely mucking it up in the Dreyfus uh, uh, trial, probably because he was so weird. But I mean, I'll leave all of those investigations to you, ladies and gentlemen. So there's this long sort of, long sort of interest in the marks associated with a uh, person. Now, this probably might be a point to say that, you know, when we're applying biometrics to crime fighting, we're really interested in you know, baddies and goodies. Um, And on the left-hand side here, we've got, I think, fairly wide societal uh, acceptance that if you're a baddie, then we can compel you to give us biometric information. So, we're going to ten-print you when you've arraigned for some horrible crime, you know, we're going to measure your height and we're going to take your mugshot and so on. And I think there's perhaps less wide societal acceptance, but it certainly goes on a lot, of covert uh, use of biometrics. So that's where um, we've got some description of someone and we're sitting there in Paris Nord station looking for some criminals, you know, uh, and we're essentially measuring the biometrics that we can from them as they go past us and comparing it with with a record of it. And we'll talk a little bit about some of those later. The challenge, if you like, the ethical challenge always comes over here which is the extent to which the goodies are willing or should be willing to give up their biometrics uh, and that's that's the big challenge for society you know the, the extent to which uh you are willing to have a an id card with your biometrics embedded in it is something that you will weigh quite heavily i suspect depending on the benefit that you think it will give you and if i said would it be acceptable for you to have covert uh, extraction of your biometrics in order to um, make sure you're not a baddie? That's when people start to get rather hot under the collar about it all. You know, there's a sort of feeling that you shouldn't do that. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about a couple of those, those trials because they've certainly been widespread. And um, the, the, short, the short order is it depends on the situation. You know, it depends whether you have any power, depends whether you're a citizen and so on it depends what the benefits are I mean I have tried protesting vigorously at the uh, US immigration border that I don't like the way they're treating me and um, the consequence of that is you don't enter the United States of America you know um, I don't have the power they do have the power so I put up with it Um, now I don't want to go into those things very much because I think they're sort of deep questions for society but i'd like to sort of have have them in our mind as we just sort of rock through the lecture because they are they're absolutely critical for the the way that biometrics are going to be deployed in the in the future so this is what a biometric system might look like Um, And uh, I'll just quickly run through it. It's a a fairly standard diagram. The idea is that we're going to measure something from you, maybe a fingerprint or your face or something like that. Often it will be combined with some claim for identity, you know. So you might say, I am the real Richard Harvey, you know. um, And here is my fingerprint to prove it. Uh, So I'm trying to think of an example where that might happen. Um, Yeah, uh, yeah, we'll talk about one later when we go through an airport. That's precisely what happens. We then do some magic in here, and that's the computer science magic, and we're going to get some score out of here, and then we can compare this with a database. Now, the way this gets... This changes a lot, depending on how... uh, what the deployment is. So this database is obviously a worry, isn't it? The idea that there might be, in the future, some national database of 70 million people's DNA records might alarm you somewhat you know you might think that's bad um, and we'll, we'll have to talk about why that would be bad but just to preview the database needn't be some great big jumbo database sitting in a you know a bomb proof bunker somewhere it might be a card that you carry yourself so you might give up some biometric you might check, the system might check that the biometric matches this your card. That's called two-factor authentication, where you're checking two things at once. And so long as the two things match, it's highly likely that it's you. So I expect quite a few people watching this already use two-factor authentication for their online accounts. Uh, I know I do, so I type in my password, then it sends me a text or a buzz to my mobile phone, which I keep about my person, I then say yes, it's really me by typing in another code and off we go, two-factor authentication. So that's a distinct possibility. Right, now then. There are so many biometrics about, though. What are the good ones and what are the bad ones? Well, this is one of those impenetrable and impossible questions. It's a sort of... Um, when you get security experts down the pub... They don't talk about what band they like or what opera they like. They talk about, uh, you know, what biometric they're using today, you know, because they they vary a lot. But the the bit I wanted to draw your attention to, because there's more universal agreement about this, are these columns running across the slide here. So the first... These are tests of whether something (coughs) is a useful biometric or not. So the first test is universality. Uh, Do we all have it? Right, That's the first question then is it unique so is the um is, is the biometric unique to you um, does it change as you age or alter yourself is it easy to collect and then this is the one that I don't really know the answer to this is the question for you really is there societal acceptance on accept on collecting this now, in order to make a good biometric, you have to have yes running across all of these. So if we just look a couple of these, you know, so let's pick DNA, for example. DNA on the face of it looks like a fantastic biometric. It's highly unique to you. Even identical twins have different DNA, which is very nice. So it's got the universality. We've all got it, definitely. Yeah, no exceptions. It is unique. It doesn't change as you get older or not very much, um, it's the collection that's so tricky with the DNA. There aren't any quick collections uh, for uh, DNA at the moment. It's a very laborious process. It usually involves um, ladies and gentlemen dressed in white rabbit suits and uh, completely clean conditions, and it often goes wrong, uh, even even then. Um, and I think it's fair to say that society would find the, the Let's just talk about Britain. If the British government declared it wanted to keep complete records of all of your DNA, so that it could eliminate you from crimes, you might be twitchy. So the next step down, not quite as accurate but pretty good, is the iris scan. I love the iris scan. I'll talk about a bit more about it later because it's it's quite it's rather beautiful the way it's collected, Um, and some very good mathematics which describes how it works. Um, It is. Almost unique. There are a few people who... um, uh, No, let me take that back. Iris is pretty good, pretty good. Yeah, you might be missing an eye, but the other eye will do. Um, It's permanent. It doesn't change. um, It's easy to collect or easy-ish to collect. Uh, I'm not sure whether people find it acceptable. I mean, it's in use in certain areas. There have been some trials of it that have failed and some that have worked. The fingerprint is very well known to us. I've just been talking about it. There are some diseases that can remove your fingerprints. And somebody pointed out a nice article recently where um, a, a gentleman had been having a cancer treatment and the effect of that cancer treatment had been remove his fingerprints. So notwithstanding the fact he had a rather nasty disease, he was held for a long time at US immigration trying to explain himself. Um, and there, there are a few people who don't have it. Now, if we just pick the face, I won't go through all of these because uh, you can think about it. Let's pick the face. Um, the face is rather... The face is rather fascinating because we, we've we all got one, which is great. Its uniqueness, I think, is highly questionable. Um, if, if you like watching YouTube videos, there are numerous examples of... Um, twins getting access to each other's iphone using the uh, face recognition system on the iphone and i should point out that apple's systems are generally pretty robust um so that's a that's a problem also face detection face detection at the moment doesn't run equally well across all ethnicities so uh, some people can get left out might be a good thing um but that's the way uh, life is and you do get older so your your baby face doesn't really match your um elderly face. I mean, I know we all like to look at faces, oh yes, you look just like you were when you were a new baby. But um, <laughs> you know, it does vary a bit. And then down here we've got some that are frequently touted as good um, but really are pretty hopeless. Um, by hopeless, I'll, I'll put some numbers on that for you there, but these are these ones down here are a little more than toys, to be perfectly honest. You know, they're, they're, are, they're fun little tricks for the idea behind keystrokes is that the way I type is unique to me. There are delays between the way I press all of those keys. Um, it, and that, that is helpful in identifying whether it's me at the keyboard or someone else. I, I don't disagree. That's fine. Um, I'm not sure I would trust that to secure my bank account, though. No. Um, So I'm perfectly happy for my computer to be listening to me typing on the key, saying, oh, dear, it doesn't look like Richard's there anymore. I think we'll just do a lock screen and see if he can remember his password. You can imagine how annoying that will be, won't you? But um, obviously, you know, I can change the way I type. I just have to learn to touch type, and I will, you know, I'll change. That's the whole basis of learning to type. Um, So a lot of these... Biometric systems are unproven, okay, and uh, it's a problem. That leads us to evaluation. You know, how can you evaluate one of these things? Um, There are huge commercial pressures to sell people biometric identifiers. There's a lot of money in selling people biometrics and running accurate trials is not that easy. So there's a tremendous lack of interest In running accurate biometric trials, probably the best ones have been done by uh, the National Institute for Standards and Technology in the United States. There was a guy there called Jonathan Phillips who ran a whole series of impressive trials on face detectors, and I see they branched out to do fingerprints and various other things. Um, this is how you should do it, though. Well, this, is the sort of, this is the basis for doing it, and I, I want to just go through this because it, it illuminates this major problem that you have with any of these systems. So here's my sort of stylized detector. It's a Richard detector, OK? So um, this is a face detector, as it happens, and we've got all of these distinguished faces up here. Those of you who are familiar with Gresham College will recognise all the Gresham professor, professors. And what I've got here is a metre, and it's going to go... Into the red when it sees Richard. That's the idea. Okay, so you can imagine the experimenter, all the experimenters have white coats and a clipboard, and he or she is going to write down the score on this meter with each one of these people. So here's um, Catherine, okay, and here's Alex, and it scores a bit lower, and here's Alec, right, and you know, no, nothing much is happening. Uh, and we get to Chris Bud, who doesn't look like me at all, so we got lower, and along comes Richard. Woo! Oh, good, nice high score. And then there's Joe Delahunty, who's not like me at all, you know, much more beautiful. And then uh, there's Chris Whitty and so on. So so you can imagine doing... Now, imagine doing that experiment a couple of hundred million times, right? So um, we'll... um, Obviously, you have to collect this database of people, so you've got to collect lots and lots of pictures of me, all in different aspects, and you've got to collect... You know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of pe- pictures of other people. Well, this is what we do. This is how it's done. Right? And then we could go and we could plot a histogram of these scores. Okay? So this lump here, this is the histogram of all the Richard pictures, for example. It probably looks something like this. And this is the pi- histogram of everyone else. Okay? So we can see there is a potential problem here, isn't there? That A, a score of about two, well, we're not really sure okay if we're seeing a score of six we're pretty sure it's a richard yeah? if we're for a score of minus two we're pretty sure it's it's not a richard it's someone else so these are actually a pain to summarize to, to work with these histograms um, so what we'd normally do is do a bit of summary of them so the question we might ask you say well, well let's pick a threshold so let's imagine i've set the threshold at 6.2 for some strange reason. And if it's greater than that, it's going to be a Richard. And if it's less than that, it's going to be uh, another thing. And those are called the true positives. Right? They're the people I would wish to accept. Now, if I had the threshold over here, of course, these are false positives. These are people who aren't Richard but are masquerading as Richard. They are imposters. So you can see immediately that this choice of threshold is rather tricky. And one of the great swizzes of uh, biometric life is that manufacturers and and everyone tends to fiddle around with this threshold to give them the the results that they would jolly well like. Um, And I'll try and explain that for you. And the way we can explain that is to look at a little graph. So what I'm going to plot on this graph is for a given threshold what the true positive rate is and for reasons that might become obvious I'm going to plot one minus the false positive rate okay so just to orient yourselves this is disaster down here and this is very good okay this is a something that has a hundred percent true positive rate and a zero percent false positive rate because zero one minus zero is one okay up there so let's just plot that Okay, so this case here, this threshold here, obviously I'm collecting, I'm getting all of this lump here. So we're up here, but I'm making all of these uh, false positives, which pushes me down here. And as I move the threshold, now I'm starting to eat in to this blue line. So I'm taking down the false positives. I haven't started to eat into the red yet. So I'm still up here. That's good and I'm starting to eliminate this, and I'm moving towards Nirvana, which is over here. It's very nice, right? And... Oh, I've started to eat into the red now, and now I'm starting to significantly eat into the red. And now I can plot a little line that joins them all. And that is called a receiver operating characteristic curve. Now, you might say that well, I'm just interested in this bit. And in fact, a lot of people just consider the intersection of this curve with this, often known as the equal error rate point. It's the point where you're making equal errors in both ways. Um, The curve itself is often used to compare systems, though. So if we were comparing these two systems, uh, let's do a show of hands. Who thinks the blue system is the best system? Who thinks the yellow system is the best system? You're right, ladies and gentlemen. The yellow system is unequivocally better than blue. And that's because at all times it is, hu- it is closer to nirvana than any of these. And what about um, this system? Who likes the yellow system? You can raise your hands. Who likes the green system? There is no correct answer, as you correctly identify by your insistence on sitting on your hands uh, which uh, I don't blame you for it's one of Richard's trick questions and the simple fact is that if you want to operate over here then the yellow system is the one that you prefer and if you want to operate over here then the green system is the way you want to prefer technically if you're interested in such things the area under these curves is a sort of overall figure of metric these curves have been drawn to have roughly the same area but Where you operate depends entirely on the uh, situation you're in. Okay, so these two errors, true positive rate, false positive rate, it's very confusing. They're called all sorts of things by different subjects. So uh, medics call them... uh, What do medics call them? Type 1 errors, usually. Uh, Very aggravating. I can never remember whether it's a type 1 or a type 2 error. Um, I often remember it by thinking it's a false alarm, it's crying wolf. Um, because my mind works like this, I decided to work out, where did Crying Wolf come from? Okay, well, just a slight deviation. Aesop's Fables is the origin of um, Crying Wolf, but it wasn't called uh, Crying Wolf um, until quite recently. Quite rightly. uh, Let me draw your attention to the work of Sir Sir Roger Estrange um, from 1692. He realised it shouldn't be called The Boy Who Cried Wolf, the boy and false alarms was what he called it. Right, right. He was obviously a budding, <laughs> budding computer scientist. And he was my sort of man. So in biometrics, we might call this false acceptance rate. Okay? It's the chance that you accidentally accept someone you should. And then, of course, there's the false negative, which is sometimes called a type 2 error or a misdetection if you're in that. Sometimes also called a false rejection rate. So that's where you refuse to let someone in when you should do. This is the one that annoys uh, legitimate users, you know, you're at your front door uh, of your office trying to swipe to get in and it won't let you in. Uh, and this is the one that annoys security guys because um, a black hat got into, the, uh, got into the lab and caused havoc. Actually, what you really have to do is you have to assign, if you want to optimise this, um, I don't really have time to go into this, you have to optimise what's called the operating point. And the way you do that is you you sit down with your accountants and you write down the costs of making all of these uh, errors. And you say, well, what would happen? What what would that cost us? Um, You assign all of these costs, then you put all the probabilities from your detector, and then you optimise to get the right operating point for the costs that you think you are dealing with. I've done this numerous times Users are massively, massively reluctant to do this, in my experience. I think it's very disappointing because all of the maths is perfectly good, it's a perfectly optimizable problem. But uh, for some reason, users are simply very, very unwilling to deal with this. Um, I was at a board meeting the other day and I asked somebody what the acceptable error rate was for their system, and they said zero. Now that's an absurd statement. You know, you cannot get zero. Um, but they were simply unwilling to accept anything else. Most peculiar. So, if we're on the question of um, false alarms, by the way, um, let me introduce you to Stanislav Petrov. Um, Stanislav was a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet air defence force in uh, 1983. So, 26 September 1983, three works are. Weeks after the Soviet military had shot down a Korea Airlines flight 007, Petrov was the duty officer at the command centre at the OCO nuclear warning system when the system reported that a missile had been launched from the United States, followed by five more. Petrov's duty on that day was to um, launch a counter-strike. That was his job, um, uh, which would have led to total annihilation, I imagine, but he decided that it was probably a false alarm. So he disobeyed his orders. I feel very warm towards Stanislav, don't you? And I, I sort of feel that he, of all people, knew precisely the costs of um, false alarms. So um, he's, he's the hero of the day, really. You know, That's precisely the sort of person we want. OK, now just let's flick onto a couple of these um, systems. So let's just think about, for a moment, DNA. I mean, DNA holds the attraction of its uniqueness. Um, False positive rate of zero. Um, There are numerous examples of DNA uh, going wrong. I've picked one, a famous one, Timothy Durham, who was a US uh, guy who was sentenced to a 3,000-year sentence for um, uh, obviously bad behaviour. I can't quite remember what he did, but it was pretty bad. Um, Simple collection error. Uh, His DNA got mixed up with the victim's. Um, they overlaid them, they uh, did a false identity, even though that he was hundreds of miles away at the time and had eyewitnesses saying he was hundreds of miles away, he um, was falsely convicted. People placed ludicrously amounts of high amounts of trust on the DNA evidence because they focused on the wrong part of the system, of course. The, um, it's perfectly true that if the DNA is collected properly, then the match rates are zero, but it isn't collected properly. That's the issue. Um, And there's a nice paper here, if you're of academic bent, that will talk about not only the collection, but it talks about what sort of errors have happened in practice during DNA uh, collection. Um, Somebody at Gresham College very nicely um, pointed out a sort of alarming article about how DNA collection was coming in computers and, uh, uh, you know, we would all have to be careful to wipe our coffee cups after... um, you know, doing something, because all our DNA would get everywhere. Um, I think the difficulties of DNA collection are so challenging at the moment that we can effectively write it off for quite a while. Um, you just, it's, DNA is everywhere, and people's DNA gets everywhere. This is the cause of the problem. The one that I thought might be worth just pausing a little bit was the iris. The iris is a wonderful uh, thing. It's this part of the eye, in case you don't know. Um, so this is called the sclera here Uh, so it's this colored bit these flecks here are uh, random at birth as far as we can tell and everybody has two unique well they've got two eyes they have two unique irises and a nice uh, very interesting man called John Dowdman uh, from the University of Cambridge uh, developed a system that was uh, essentially able to unwrap this into this code here binary code contains about 2,000 bits And uh, John's papers show that the false acceptance rates from iris should be about 1 in 10 to the 11. So the chance of false acceptance, accepting someone as an imposter, very, very, very unlikely. And um, iris scan is now sort of reaching commercial um, reality. And by the way, that was assuming that about 30% of the iris was obscured because obviously here... This bit of the iris is obscured and you get glint and various other things which obscure it. So it's a very impressive biometric. It's the sort of biometric that everyone would want to, to have. Um, and nowadays it's getting a little bit easier to, to use it. And I'll, I'll just show you it, it, it in use at um, Schiphol Airport. Easy peasy. Now, so your card, which is pre-prepared, that has an encrypted version of your iris scan on it. So you put your card in, the machine records and stores your scan, then you're locked into the gates, and then it checks that the code on the card matches you and if you are allowed into the airport and all of its dominions uh, without showing your passport. Uh, They tried similar ones at uh, Birmingham and Manchester, and I think they're still in operation at various Heathrow terminals, actually, and various bits of the states. Um, The Manchester and Birmingham trials have been stopped because it was too slow to capture people. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced by that myself. I mean, anyone who's been to Manchester Airport knows, you know, it's one of the worst airports on the planet, so um, (laughs) it's probably, you know, probably an indication that... They don't know what they're doing. Um, I said that the iris was stable. This is one of the nice examples. Um, This is a a photograph called Portrait of an Afghan Girl. It was taken in 1984 uh, by Steve McCurry, famous Time magazine picture, and it's often been called the New Mona Lisa. This this picture here is a very sort of dramatic picture. There's a lady who had uh, a 14-year-old girl called uh, Shabat Gula, had an extremely troubled and turbulent life, which one likes to think you can see in the eyes. Uh, This lady turned up later and claimed to be Shaba Gula, and you can see the problem, can't you? It's not immediately obvious that they're the same person. Um, So Iris Gann, on the photograph, easy. It it is the same person. Um, Highly ironically and unpleasantly, um, she had just been deported from Pakistan because the Pakistani authorities believed her identity documents were fake. Um, So, you know, there's an example where if only there had been an iris uh, scan, uh, she would have been able to prove her identity. This is an important theme, that digital identity is is quite important not to put one's own situation onto digital identity. Of course, there are lots of uh, rather well-off people who don't really like the imposition of people knowing who they are at all. But digital identity is often seen as empowering for people who are in impoverished circumstances because they might have lost their documents. So thinking about the first example I had, they might be uh, cross-border refugees. Um, Certainly the Aadhaar system, which is um, popular in uh, in India, it has a strapline giving the poor an identity. And... uh, Aadhaar is the biggest biometric system on the planet. 1.2... Aadhaar is a Hindi word. It means foundation or base, I think. Um, 1.2 billion people are enrolled. It's voluntary, um, although actually there is some controversy about how voluntary it really is. Um, And it links to your um, social security entitlement. One of the nice things about an Aadhaar card is you can go into a shop and draw your social security money uh, from a shopkeeper or who might have an Ardhar terminal you can then at the end of the day put your card in and give the money back uh, because if you're sleeping on the street you're highly likely to get robbed so you can use the social security system as a little little bank um, it uses iris scan it uses a whole range of um, things it's been subject to numerous controversies um, and I've looked at these in some detail. I mean, they were brought to my attention by uh, Lucia Graves at uh, at Gresham College. And um, they're very fascinating disputes. I mean, what usually happens, what usually gets revealed is your Aadhaar number um, and some information about you. So it's a bit like me knowing your social security number. The question is, does that matter? You know, probably it would be good if you didn't. But to, is it really a security breach is one of those sort of philosophical questions. The um, Indian Unique Identification Authority vigorously say it is not a security breach, as you would expect them to. Anyway, it's a big thing in India. And in fact, if you're, um, if you're around later this year, there will be a film about Aadhaar. I've got a little trailer for it here. You can, so it show, I like it because it, um, it shows how it works. This is the collection system here, yeah? (laughs) This is the fingerprint scanner.
1: This is the camera.
0: Uh, needless to say, it doesn't all go to plan. Um, I don't want to be a plot spoiler or anything, but the um, the Aadhaar number he is given, uh, I think he he then goes to a fortune teller who says this Aadhaar number is extremely unlucky and is associated with the death of your wife. So he then has to go to tremendous difficulties to change it. It's a sort of um, sort of uh, rural Indian uh, comedy. Um, but, uh, so Artar uses the uh, iris scan, and this is sort of peculiar Indian resonance throughout this lecture. You know, in India, you've got such large numbers of people and such strong uh, need to communicate with people in an orderly way that such a system might be acceptable. I, I can't quite see it taking off in the UK. The UK couldn't even agree to have an identity card, which is the most modest of, um, of things I would have thought. Now... Face recognition is the one that's generating all the controversy at the moment, and actually, I have less to say about that because it, it is really not very reliable. Um, you know, twins, doppelgangers, masks can fool it. You know, have a nice rubber mask made. Um, there are some ethnicity issues, meaning a number of people have popped up in the press pointing out that uh, face detectors don't work for African Americans. Um, sometimes that's good. You know, who wants to be? Uh, recognized and sometimes it's very annoying if you've got an iphone um it's been trialed in and it's been trialed against the goodies so um newham county council in in london ran a face recognition test and so what they did was they 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 had 12 cameras set up in the center of newham they uh captured about half a million um images so it's mostly innocent people um, and then they ran those against a watch list, so-called, of, of 100 known villains. <coughs> um, as, as far as I can tell, no arrests at all were made as a result of this trial in Newham. So if you are a libertarian, you think that was a huge infringement of personal liberty for no, absolutely no benefit whatsoever. Uh, if you're more reasonable, you might point out that, isn't it odd that there were only 100 people on the watch list. Because there are certainly more criminals than that in Newham, I would have thought. You know, Newham has a... Well, Newham's got a population of about a quarter of a million. I'm sure there are more... And I live in Norwich, which is about the same size. But I'm sure there are more than 100 criminals in Norwich. You know, so maybe Newham is particularly a law-abiding place. I don't know. Um, I, so it's a trial. The, why were there only 100? Because they couldn't do any more. Right? It takes time to match against unknown faces. So when you're doing biometric access, it's relatively easy. You, know, you might have only a few hundred people you're going to deal with. Is it Richard, is the question. Well, if Richard's got his code on the card, you're just testing, is it Richard? You don't have to test it against 100 million other people. You know? So uh, I assume they had to, I- issues. And uh, the real issue is just returning to this diagram here. Um, this diagram has been annotated by um, places where we might have attacks. And um, all, all computer security people are, are always immensely gloomy about everything. That's their job, you know. But look, every single point in this has a, a possible attack point. Now, I think, to be fair, these attack points here, well, they're all the same sort of attack, which is hackers got into the system and did something they weren't meant, meant to do. You have to take a view on how likely that is so if you think about those terminal gates in Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, well, it's not super likely, is it? You know, it's quite a secure environment. It's going to be difficult to get into those, uh, uh, those terminals, although doubtless there's some black ha- hat ha- hacker trying to now. Um, so you might sort of feel this is reasonably secure, and furthermore, the database is just your card, so the compromise is going to be rather small. What makes all the press, of course, and all the films, talk about this attack here? This is called a presentation attack. Presentation attacks are not super well studied, but I was rather fascinated by this paper by Kevin Boyer and his his colleague. Um, So these... Well, let me ask you. um, I'm going to move my pointer. Just shout out if you think this is genuine or not. Genuine? Yes. Yes, you think that's a genuine one? No? No? Genuine? Uh, yes. yes. Um, no? No. Right. OK, thank you for the um, lady down the front who did the work for most of you. Uh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> these are the genuine ones, right? And these are attempts to spoof them. OK, this is a classic print attack where I printed a picture of an iris and held it up. Um, this is contact lens... This is somebody holding up a Kindle with the iris on. This is a glass eye. This is a synthesised uh, image where you've, we've CGI'd an iris on it. And this is a dead person. OK. Um, yeah, sorry about that. It was a bit grisly. Uh, I was just sort of rather devoted to these people. These people spent ages going to morgues to um, iris scan people. They wanted to know how long the iris uh survived by the way um let me just tell you which ones were successful uh yeah this was successful this was only successful in recognition evasion. so you know not being recognized so you're a criminal somebody's taking your iris you don't want to be recognized you use the contact lens to avoid being recognized i don't think that's much of a challenge um you're not sure about that people think not people think not not this does work okay um and I think that's, that's fair enough. So where are we with all of this? Right, two observations. The first one is the law. Well, there are some attempts to handle biometrics in some of the uh, legal frameworks. I've picked out two of them, one of which will be probably more familiar uh, to the, the rest, one of which is the general data protection regulations, uh, which uh, apply in the European Union. Uh, these are oh god, what's it stand for? The California Something Privacy Act, okay, which is um, about to come out. Similar sorts of ideas appear in all of these. As far as GDPR goes, biometric data is regarded as a sensitive category, and so there's special, um, special requirements to deal with it. Now, so I, I think this is sort of getting onto the right track, but I think it's a fact that the law is somewhat lagging from. Uh, technology, as it often does in this area. Now, just before we close off, I just thought I'd point out a couple of things. Um, the first one is that the biometric performance I've been talking about varies quite a lot. So, um, this is false acceptance rate here. So, this means um, 0.1% of uh, people imposters are being accepted in these two technologies here. These all have minuscule false acceptance rates. This is the one, this is the axis you worry about. This axis is the annoyance axis. This is the false rejection rate. This is, you know, you, you go up to the biometric system and it says, I'm Richard, and he goes, no, no, sorry, you're not. You know, that's really annoying. Um, well, there is the identity of the various systems. So face recognition, which I was a bit scathing about. I was scathing for this reason, right? It's up, up here, voice recognition, the same. Down here... We've got iris. I put in another one as well, palm vein. And this is the fingerprint method. So that's why I've tended to talk a little bit about iris uh, classification um, uh, today. The truth, however, is that technology moves ever so quickly in this field and the law is rather slow to catch up. And when it does catch up, it's a bit sort of blunt, I think it's fair to say. Um... Certainly, the consequences of impersonation can be alarming. If you think about your own life, you think, what would an impersonator mean? It's possible to come up with some alarming consequences. But in this lecture, what I'm, I don't want to be alarmist. It sort of worries me. When you read the newspapers, there's an enormous um, alarmism about some of these consequences, and you really do have to think, well, what would happen if there was an imposter here? What was, what's the real consequence of that? And I, I think, obviously, the, the sort of moral of the tale is, one, think carefully about those uh, consequences and think carefully about how the biometric systems that you're using are, are working. That's, and that's your responsibility as citizens. That's our responsibility as citizens. And the other responsibility is not to sort of carelessly give away information when you don't have to. Um, and... Uh, on that last point, I'll just play you a short video which was put onto me by a guy called David Higgins who runs an IT security company in Norfolk, a very good guy, uh, which I liked a lot. a good point to end the lecture ladies and gentlemen be vigilant and I look forward to seeing you in the next lecture thank you